Well, good morning, church. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. I am so excited for today. By the way, if you're new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here, part of our teaching team. And today we launch into a new series, but I have to just be brutally honest with you and say I am a little bit nervous to follow up on what we did last week. If you were here last week, raise your hand right now so we know who all our faithful people are. Okay, no, you were, you're... We're glad you're here last week. If you, weren't, if you weren't here, you missed out on something really, really special. We called it a worship together service. We had games and stuff before the service downstairs, and then we had an incredible time here with kids and teens and adults and everything in between, all involved in the worship service. It was awesome. Um, you can go back and watch it online if you want to, but honestly, it will not have the same effect I tried this week, and it's just not the same as being there. So, if you want to experience that, the next time we're going to be doing that is April 19th. That is the week after Easter. And so our hope is that we'll have Easter. We always have tons of visitors in for Easter, and we can even let them know, hey, we're going to do something really special for the families next week. Come back and be a part of it, and we'll do that again. So make sure you mark that on your calendars for April 19th. It'll be really, really good. We're starting a new series today called A Thrill of Hope. And hope is an idea that really resonates with me. Maybe it resonates with some of you as well. I feel like there have been times in my life where I have really, really needed more hope. Anybody relate to that? Times where I've felt discouraged, uh, even depressed. Times where I've wondered if life is worth living. And you need that hope to kind of help you to press on. And that's the beautiful thing about hope and the appeal of hope is that it answers that question of is life worth living without immediately solving your problems. Does that make sense? The idea of hope or the appeal of hope is that without your situation immediately getting better, it gives you what you need to press on because you're hoping for something better in the future. That's the whole point of hope. Not that everything will get better right now, but I hope it will, I believe it will in the future, and so I can press on and move on. Now, I don't think it's any secret that our world has a serious problem with hopelessness. It's a, it's a big, big problem. You can see it all around you. You can see it on the news. You can see it online. When you've got kids who will take a gun and go into school and shoot the people who ought to be their friends, that's hopelessness. When you've got celebrities who have all the fame you can imagine, everyone knows their name, they've won all these prestigious awards, and they end up taking their own life, that's hopelessness. When you've got people who have so much money, they don't know what to do with it all. They can buy anything they want, and normal people like you and me would go, <clears throat> that's all I want. Like that. If I could have that, if I could have so much money that I could literally buy anything I want, wow, then my life would be great. When you have those people who are getting addicted to alcohol and drugs, that's hopelessness. Hopelessness is a very real problem in our world today, and I know that those are kind of more extreme examples, but I'm willing to bet that every single person in this room and watching online right now has struggled with hopelessness. Sometimes it's persistent, sometimes there's an event that comes into our life that just makes us wonder, what's the point of all this? What's the meaning of all this? Can I continue on? How can I continue on with what's going on right now? The loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the diagnosis of a terminal disease, a broken relationship, a bad investment, uh, a, a marriage that's falling apart, a wayward son or, or daughter. All these things can make us wonder, is there any meaning to this? Is there any hope in all this? Is there any reason to continue on? What have you found in your life has made you feel hopeless? Now, here's the thing about hope and hopelessness. 
The very fact that we can feel that way, that we need and want to hope for something better, tells us something very important. And it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not religious, if you believe in God or don't believe in God, if you have money or no money, fame or no fame, none of that stuff matters. The fact that deep down inside, we wrestle with hopelessness, that we wrestle with a, with a, a feeling like, like I, I'm, in, I'm struggling and I'm suffering, and deep down inside we feel like it's not supposed to be this way. That tells us something about who we are, about humanity and about this world. See, something's not right. We know this, we all feel this, something's not right. It's not supposed to be this way. The pain, the suffering, the struggling, the brokenness, it shouldn't be that way. And we all instinctively know this, we feel this, like life is messed up somehow and should be better. And it's the fear that it's not going to get better that is hopelessness. It's supposed to be better. It's not supposed to be this way. There's a magazine called The New Scientist which did an article on the meaning of life. And the question is, what is the meaning of life? And here's the conclusion of their article. The harsh answer is, it has none. You're welcome. (laughs) Your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. When it ends, a few people will remember you for a while, but they will die too. Even if you make the history books, your contribution will soon be forgotten. Humans will go extinct. Earth and sun will be destroyed. Eventually, the universe itself will end. And against this appalling reality, how can a human life have any real meaning? Don't you just want to put that on your mirror? (laughs) Wake up every day. And just as a reminder, none of this matters. That's hopelessness. What if they're wrong? What if there's something to that feeling that all of us have that it's not supposed to be that way? What if there's a reason that billions of people around the world are searching for answers, searching for something more, searching for something, some reason, all the religions around the world trying to figure out the solution to this problem of it's not supposed to be this way. And somehow we feel like it should be better. What if that's where all those different religions came from and it's just a lot of people who haven't found the truth? But instinctively, deep down inside of us, we know, we feel, we understand something's broken, something's messed up. The pain and the suffering and the hurt that you have experienced is not just the result of some random coincidence, random blips of matter that are in a meaningless world. See, I believe that it's not supposed to be this way. I believe that it's not just the result of random coincidence and chance. I believe that it wasn't always this way and it won't always be this way and that is hope. It wasn't broken, it's broken now, it won't be broken in the future. And so this morning I wanna look at the reason why it's broken. Why do we struggle with hopelessness? Why do we feel like it should be better? In order to do that, you have to understand where it all comes from. You have to go back to the beginning. You have to go back to before things were broken. And that has to come with a warning label. 
And that warning label is this. We're launching this Christmas series today, and it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be filled with hope, and it's going to be joyful and celebratory, and you're going to love it, but not today. This is not the warm, fuzzy message in this series. This is the, the world is messed up, and everything's wrong, and here's why message. If you were listening carefully, all of our songs were filled with hope, In fact, the answers to the questions that I'm going to raise, if you listen carefully, were in all of the songs today. It's been communicated clearly. But the message time is really going to be focused on what's wrong, what's messed up, and why. Because unless we understand the full gravity of why it's so broken and so messed up, we are not going to appreciate the hope that we have. So that's your warning. I want to show you where we're going in this series. This is the roadmap for what we're going to do. Today is need for hope. That's our focus. Why do we need hope? What happened to mess this place up so bad? Next week is going to be promise of hope. We're going to look at Old Testament scriptures that prophesy about a future hope and what that means for us and how that hope comes about. And then we're going to look at doubt of hope, belief of hope, reward of hope, as we take a look at the stories of Zechariah and Mary and Simeon and their interaction with God's plan for hope for the world, and look at it through their eyes. And then we're going to talk about a contagious hope. That's on December 24th. It's Christmas Eve. In case you didn't know that, December 24th is Christmas Eve. It usually works out that way. And we're going to have three services that day. We did this for the first time on Good Friday of this year. We offered three services, and we had way more people show up because people are traveling. They, some of them have different work schedules or need to be home at a certain time or don't want to drive after a certain time. So we're doing that again for Christmas Eve. 2 p.m. in the chapel, 4 p.m. here, 6.30 p.m. here, and after the 6.30 service, we'll have cookies and cocoa in the activity center. Those are a lot of fun. We'll have a great time for that. So this is offering lots of times for us to come, and we're going to wrap up the series that night, Christmas Eve, December 24th, with Contagious Hope. Before we go any further, before we open the Bible and study it this morning, I'm going to ask that you just bow your heads with me and pray and ask God to teach us this morning what He wants us to learn. God, You have written this Word and You've given it to us so that we can learn from it, so that we can learn about You, so that we can learn how You want us to live our lives. And my prayer this morning, I hope the prayer of everyone sitting out here and watching online right now, is that you would use my words, and more importantly, your word, to teach us. Help us to understand this world that we live in, that you created. Help us to understand, Lord, why it is the way it is, even when we struggle with doubts and wrestle with things that we see going on around us and in our own lives, in our own minds. Lord, please help us to know more about you from our study today. Help us to learn how you want us to live, how we should interact with you and with other people, our relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1. It's where it all begins. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Back to the beginning of this whole thing. We're going to be in Genesis 1 through 3 and look at how it all began. Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This chapter goes on to talk about how he created the the light, sky, dry land, plants, sun, moon, animals, and then it says this, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. 
So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. I want to point something out here, which is not really a part of the message. It's just a free bonus fact. Work is not a result of anything bad. God gave humans the responsibility to care for and reign over and work before they messed anything up. So work is not necessarily a bad thing. It can become a bad thing. It can become an idol in your life. It can become a negative influence. But work is something we're designed to do. We are not designed as people to sit around and watch TV all day. All right, that's just not what God made us for. We are supposed to be productive. In fact, we know medically and scientifically that if you stay productive later in life in some way, whether it's with a a job or, or something else that you do that helps you stay productive, you will live a longer life. When you stop being productive, that's when your years start to shrink. And so it's very, very important to be working. That's what God made us and designed us to do. That is not a part of today's message in any way, shape, or form. That is not important to what we're going to talk about later. I just felt like some of you needed to hear it. God designed us to be productive. And so whether you're married in a relationship or single or whatever it is, God made you to go do stuff. So go do stuff. It's part of his design pre-fall, pre-messed up world. Work is not a part of the broken, hopeless world, okay? That is not a result of that. Let's just be clear. Then in verse 31, God looked over all he had made. He saw that it was very good. Very good. Not just good, very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. It was all very good. The land, the sea, the plants, the animals, everything God made, the two people that God created and gave responsibilities to work, that was all very good. Perfect. Nothing broken. No damaged relationships. No hurts. No pain. And we're going to talk about those first two people a lot this morning. But before I get into that, I really have to address something else first. Something that has become a common trend among evangelical Christians today. It's really taken off in the last few years. It's been around for a while, but it's taken off in the last few years. And that is, we have to deal with this question of, were Adam and Eve real people? Is this just a spiritual fairy tale? Is this just an allegory? Is this just figurative? Is this just kind of Hebrew poetic literature that's not meant to be taken literally and really never was in the past? And and as some scholars have argued, maybe it's really more of a recent invention that we actually look to Adam and Eve as real people and not just representatives of the downfall of the human race. That's a real question that's out there right now. And it's, it's growing, especially among young Christians. They're wrestling with, okay, does it make sense with what I'm learning in school and and hearing about online and and seeing on YouTube, does it make sense for Adam and Eve to be real people or could they just be symbolic? Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to try to talk about creation or evolution today. Um, Not that I'm afraid to talk about it, but we don't have time. That's not what this message is about. We're not going to talk about the age of the earth. We're not going to get into that. We'll do that some other time. This is not that time. This time, we're talking about Adam and Eve. And we need to address this because a couple of years ago, Gallup did a survey and found that only 38% of people who say they're Christians believe in a real historical Adam and Eve. So what do we believe? What do I believe? And why is that? Well, this whole debate is called the historicity of Adam and Eve. So if you ever hear that phrase, you'll know what that means. It's were they real people? The historicity of Adam and Eve. 
And I don't want to turn this into an academic lecture. I'm not going to try to get all super dry and nerdy here. Well, just, just a little bit. Some of you will love that. Some of you will just need to stick with us and we'll get back to our normal message in a minute. And I want to acknowledge that there are many Bible scholars who I greatly respect who would disagree with me on this. But what I want to do is share with you why I believe we have to view Adam and Eve as real historical people. You can disagree with me if you want. I'm sure there'll be many people here who will. But I want to share with you why I believe these are real historical people. I've got a few different reasons for you. First of all, they're described in Genesis, in my view, as a real father and a real mother with real children. They make mistakes. They give birth to more children who give birth to more children. The family accounts here are so specific that they don't read like allegory. We have other examples of allegory and figurative literature, and this is just, it's too literal, it's too specific about these family units and who gives birth to who and all these things for it to be allegory. That doesn't really line up with what we know about uh, literature of the time. Secondly, the language that's used to describe Adam and Eve is the same language used to describe other real historical people in the Old Testament. So there are many examples of this, but the best one is some of the verbiage that's used of Adam is the same language that's used of Abraham. Now, I don't know of any Christian scholar that would tell you Abraham was a figurative representative and didn't really exist. They all believe that Abraham really existed. But the same type of language, the same words are used of Adam. So it seems to make sense that both of those are probably real people. The Hebrew that's used in Genesis of Adam is the wording for narrative, not poetry or figurative language. So uh, one of the common arguments is, well, this is just meant to be poetic. It's just kind of poetry, figurative language. The language in the Hebrew is stylized, but that's not uncommon for Hebrew historical narrative. It's normal for them at this time to write about history, but do it in stylized language. And one of the reasons for that, quite simply, is a lot of it gets passed on orally. And so the idea is not that you would have lots of written copies of this around. You might have a handful of copies that are stored someplace safe, like palaces or temples, and then outside of that, people pass it on. Well, it makes it a lot easier to pass on information if the words are arranged in a certain way so that they're easy to follow. It's why we put important information into song for our kids to learn. It's why every day my son comes home with a new song he's learned that teaches him something. He can remember that song because it helps him with his memory. And so the stylized language is not an indication that that this is allegory or poetic. There are forms for Hebrew poetry and that's not what you find in Genesis 1 through 3. The genealogies in Genesis 5, 1 Chronicles, and Luke all treat Adam as a real father with a son who has more children, who have children, who have children. These genealogies look back to Adam as the progenitor of the human race and trace his lineage to the present day. That's not to say that they plug in every possible name along the way. That's not necessary if you're trying to do a genealogy. But they do not indicate that Adam is some figurative person. They look to him as a real person who had a kid, who had a kid, who had a kid, who had a kid, and they trace it down all the way through the present day. That's true for Ezra, that's true for Moses, that's true for Luke. So the argument that it's a more recent invention that we look to these as real people is is just simply not true. Historically, uh, these, were, these people were viewed, um, even in the Jewish community, as real historical people and, and a real part of the genealogy. The writings of the early church fathers also describe belief in a literal Adam and Eve. And this is kind of astonishing to me because as I've researched this, I have found people who will claim the opposite, 
who will claim that, well, the early church didn't think that they were literal real people, and that's just a more recent invention. But if you actually go back and read the early church fathers, which I have, you cannot take their writings to mean anything other than they really believed in a real Adam and Eve. That's how they talk about them. They just assume that it's true and talk about them as real people. Jude refers, in the book of Jude, in the New Testament, refers to Adam as a real person, the ancestor of Enoch. Paul treats Adam as a real, literal person in Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Timothy 2. In fact, Paul's theology in some cases, or at least his principles that he's sharing, rely on Adam and Eve as the foundational example for that. Not as symbolic representatives, but here's what happened with Adam and Eve, therefore here's a principle. Not as if they're symbolic people. So if you're going to believe the words of Paul and Luke and Jude and Moses and Ezra and the early church fathers, if you're going to believe any of those, it's really, really hard to make the argument that Adam and Eve were not real historical people. So why are we even trying to mess with this? Why are we trying to figure out an alternative solution? Why are we trying to come up with a way to not view them as real? Well, it's because of scientific evidence. And scientific evidence over the course of the last several decades has seemingly made it impossible for us to have two people that gave birth to the human race. In fact, a few decades ago, geneticists ran some calculations mathematically and said there is absolutely no way it is scientifically disproven, there is no chance that you could get all of the genetic diversity that you see on the planet today from just two people. What had to happen was it was thousands of sort of proto-humans, pre-humans, who evolved at the same time, and that would give you enough genetic diversity to create all of the variations that we have in the human race today. It could not come from just two people. But in the late 1980s, research was done to show that there actually could be a common ancestor for all women. This was called mitochondrial Eve. Groundbreaking research in the late 1980s and in the early 1990s, the same research was done for men, and they also found that you actually could have one single ancestor for all men. A common ancestor that they all came from called chromosomal Adam. The early estimates for these two common ancestors in the past were that they could not have happened at the same time. So these are mathematical calculations that are done by geneticists based on the genes that they sampled today. And they look back and they say, well, uh, the, the time periods of these two common ancestors were tens of thousands of years apart. So that still disproves the idea of two people, that those two people were alive at the same time and created the whole human race. It's, it's debunked, it's impossible. Here's an article from Jerry Coyne, he's a biologist. He says, mitochondrial DNA points to the genes in that organelle tracing back to a single female ancestor who lived about 140,000 years ago. But that genes on the Y chromosome trace back to one male who lived about 60 to 90,000 years ago. These, he says, are scientific facts. And unlike the case of Jesus' virgin birth and resurrection, we can dismiss a physical Adam and Eve with near scientific certainty. Anytime a scientist comes out with a bold statement like this, I'm just telling you, all you have to do is wait a couple of decades at the most, and new research will happen that debunks the debunking. In this case, this was written in 2011, and two years later, there was a big whoops. 
because new studies were done, one out of Stanford, that showed something very, very different. I'm just going to give you an example. This was an article that was written in 2013. The New York Times said, new studies suggest an Adam and Eve link. So they're not tens of thousands of years apart. It says it may not have been the Garden of Eden, but two new studies suggest that the most recent common ancestor of Homo sapiens, Y-chromosome Adam, and the most recent common female ancestor, mitochondrial Eve, may have lived at the same time and in approximately the same region. That's a big whoops, because two years earlier, we had near scientific certainty that it wasn't possible. And two years later, the science seems to indicate it was very possible. The lead researcher on this out of Stanford said previous research has indicated that the male MRCA, that's most recent common ancestor, lived much more recently than the female MRCA, so too far apart to have been at the same time. But now our research shows that there's no discrepancy. So here's the thing, I'm not trying to argue that this proves a physical Adam and Eve, okay? That's, that's not the logic of this argument here. What I'm trying to demonstrate is that the science that supposedly disproved a physical Adam and Eve has now itself been disproven. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to say that this proves, oh, there was a Adam and Eve, that's who mitochondrial and chromosomal Adam are referring to. There's a lot more to it than that. What I am saying is that supposedly the slam dunk that what the Bible is saying could not have literally been true has been debunked. And it really is true. Every time you find something that that causes people to say, well, we found it. We finally found the evidence. It can't be true anymore. Now we know beyond a shadow of a doubt or near scientific certainty, you just have to wait a few years and new research will come out. And the headlines are always the same. New study changes everything we thought we knew about this. Haven't you seen those? All the time. We were so certain two years ago, and now it's looking like maybe it could be possible. So I'm not trying to argue that this proves my case. What I'm trying to say is my belief is thoroughly consistent with the more recent, more accurate scientific study. This is not science versus religion as it is so often made out to be. This is science that eventually always seems to prove what we believe in our religion. And I'm not trying to say that this is religion, this is a relationship with God. What I'm saying is that the science continues to come back and support what the Bible says. And that is a very important fact. Here's why I'm spending any time on this at all this morning. This is a growing problem among evangelical Christians where we look at some research which, let's be honest, was flawed. It was flawed and inaccurate research presented as if it was near scientific certainty. And we see that and we go, okay, well now we gotta figure out a way to fit my faith into this research. I gotta somehow cram the Bible into this so that it makes sense now. And sometimes we have to recognize that our research sometimes needs more research. This is particularly a problem for young Christians today who are bombarded with information and studies and very confident and dogmatic people who will claim things, and it's really, really hard to be, to be um, bombarded with all of that at school and online and get all of this and to not go, well, I mean, if everybody's saying this, and I mean, this guy's got a PhD and, and these are scientists, and I mean, there must be something to it, and it weakens and erodes our faith in God and in His Word. So I believe it's very important for us as a church to speak to these issues when we can. And not just to say what we believe, 
but to explain why we believe them and why it is not in conflict with the best scientific research. I think that's very important. But where that leaves us with, in my view, is a real historical Adam and a real historical Eve. Two people that were created by God as perfect, in a perfect place, a perfect world, no sin, no brokenness, no damage whatsoever, and here is what God does with them next. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned them, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Here's the question I want to ask you. Why did God have to create that tree? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why did he even make that thing? It wasn't a need for food. There were lots of trees all over the place. Why would God even make it possible for them to do that? I've heard kids ask that question. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. But I've heard kids ask that question of, why did God even make that thing? And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is actually fairly simple. I'm going to put it in a catchy phrase and then I'm going to explain it. The answer, I believe, is that if your goal is a relationship, a robot will never do. If your goal is a real relationship, a robot will never do. There can be no true love without the ability to reject. There can be no real trust without the ability to doubt. God did not create the animals to have intimate relationship with him. So the animals got no moral test of faithfulness. He created people to have a very different kind of relationship with him. One that included love and trust and obedience. And it doesn't really mean a lot if you don't have the ability to do the opposite. The opportunity to reject, to not love, to disobey God, to disbelieve God. It didn't have to be a tree with fruit. It could have been a river not to cross, a hole not to dig, an animal not to touch. But there is something incredibly powerful about the opportunity to reject him that God chose to place before them. It's a tree with fruit. They had near unlimited access to fruit all over the garden. This was not a problem of hunger. They had everything they could want as far as food was concerned. There was no reason for them to ever eat of this fruit of this tree. None. And fruit, when you eat it, it goes inside of you. This isn't just something that you touch or do or cross. This is something that you consume. And the nutrients of that fruit actually go into your body and start to become a part of your body. It gets all over you. If you eat fruit that is rotten or in some way diseased or poisoned, then you could get incredibly sick and die from that. So there's something really powerful about the symbolism that God uses when he says, the opportunity I'm going to give you to reject me is something that you would consume and put inside of you having no real need for it because there's all this fruit around you. You're gonna really have to want to reject me if you're gonna eat that fruit. There's no logical reason for it. So we have a perfect God and a perfect world and two perfect people and a perfect garden and perfectly good fruit all around. 
A wonderful situation. What happens next? The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? No fruit from any tree? How are you guys surviving? Verse 2, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So there is a lot that we could unpack here. That could be the whole message right there. I'm just going to point out a couple of things. The main thing I want you to take away from this is that Satan attacked not just Eve's appetite, but her relationship with God. That's what he was really attacking. I'm going to show you three things that he did. First of all, he questions God's words. Did God really say that? Did he really say you? And he exaggerates, right? He said, did, you, did he say you couldn't eat from any fruit in the garden? Wow, that's really restrictive. What a limiting God. He tries to make God's words sound worse than they were. Then he contradicts God's words. Secondly, you won't die. God was lying to you. Don't listen to him. And third, he challenges God's goodness. He says, God knows your eyes will be opened. He's not trying to protect you. He's trying to keep something good from you. Isn't that exactly how we are tempted today? I mean, it has not changed after all these years. These are the types of temptations that creep into our lives. Did God really say something so extreme? I mean, that sounds really limiting. Did God really say that? God's not telling the truth. The world and the culture, they know better than God. That's stuff from the Bible. It's so 2,000 years ago. The culture knows better. Let's go along with the culture and the world and what they're doing. There's a lot of pressure for that. And God doesn't know what's best for you. He's trying to keep the good and the fun stuff from you. He doesn't want you to have all this good fun. So just forget about him. It's the same temptation that Eve faced. It's not about her appetite. It's about her relationship with God. Well, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some fruit of the tree and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. It's the beginning of the biggest tragedy the human race has ever experienced. Eve believed Satan instead of God. She was deceived. She took the fruit. She ate it. She gave it to her husband. I want to address something right here because it's also becoming a popular misconception about this story. And I think it's a distraction uh, from the reality of what happened here. I've heard it from a lot of pastors. Uh, there's been a recent uh, popularity, it's become more and more common for people to, to tie into this word that Adam was with Eve to give the impression and try to give a sermon application that because he was with her, he heard the serpent and he ignored his responsibility to step in and stop the serpent and protect Eve. And so it's become very, very common to try to, to lump more of that onto Adam as if, well, the Bible says he was with her, so he must have been right with her and he must have heard the serpent and he wasn't fulfilling his obligation. And the honest truth is there's really nothing in the text that backs that up. That's extremely speculative. All of the evidence points to Adam not hearing the serpent. The serpent only talked to Eve. Eve convinced Adam to take the fruit without any connection between the serpent and Adam. Adam ends up blaming Eve when God confronts him. 
And God, in verse 17, says to Adam, because you listened to your wife, not because you didn't step in and stop the serpent. So I think it's a mistake for us to try to add sins to Adam that God doesn't. God tells us what Adam did that was wrong. And we don't have to lump things and add things onto that. Adam was with Eve in the garden. Maybe he was with her in the general area. Maybe he was with her and asleep as a lot of the early church fathers thought. That he was with her but he was asleep and so she was talking to the serpent alone. Whatever it was, there's really very insufficient evidence to to draw out this application point that's become so popular today that Adam was right there with her, heard the serpent, and didn't step in. That That is almost certainly not what happened. And it's a distraction from the real issue. Adam knowingly rejected God. And he didn't just reject God, he put something else before God. See, Eve sinned because she believed a lie. Adam sinned because Eve now mattered more to him than God. Does that make sense? Eve sinned because she believed a lie. Adam didn't believe the lie. He sinned knowing it was a lie, but he now viewed Eve as more important in his life than God. That's exactly what God says. When God points out the sin of Adam, he does not say because you took the fruit. He does not say because you didn't correct the serpent and step in and protect your wife. He says because you listened to your wife. Now don't draw too much application from that. (laughs) But the reality is, all of us have people that are very important to us that at times we have put before God. And I love my wife. But if I start putting her before God, eventually it's going to ruin my relationship with my wife. Does that make sense? All of us have people that at times we have said no to God so that we could say yes to them, and that's exactly what's happening right here. Adam is facing a situation where his wife has already consumed the fruit. This is the perfect trap for him. Why did Satan approach Eve first? Eve was deceived. Paul later says in the New Testament, Adam wasn't deceived. He says Adam knew exactly what he was doing, but Adam was now faced with a choice. Do I stay in the perfect garden with the perfection that God has given and lose my wife, or do I join her in this? Do I choose her over God? And right there, next to his brand new smoking hot wife, he says, give me the apple, or fig, or whatever it was. We don't know what kind of fruit it was. And he chose Eve over God. As I was studying at this exact point in my message, I was sitting in a coffee shop and there was music playing, and all of a sudden in this song, I usually don't listen to the music. I don't, it's just background noise to me. It helps me to, to focus on what I'm doing. But all of a sudden I heard this line come over the, the sound. You know, I hate to admit it, but everything means nothing if I can't have you. Is anyone familiar with that song? Do you know what I'm talking about? Sean Mendes came out this year. Okay. In the early service, I said that and someone went, woo, yeah. All right. (laughs) And I thought to myself, wow, this is exactly what Adam was experiencing in this moment. Everything means nothing if I can't have you, Eve. Everything God provided, all that he's done for me, all of his instructions, everything he's done, that means nothing if I can't have you. 
Adam's sin wasn't just in taking the fruit. God says, it's because you listened to your wife instead of me. You valued your wife more than me. You prioritized something else instead of me. And here is something that I hope everyone will take away from today. At the heart of every broken relationship is people like you and me who have put something or some person over God. We're looking to something or some person to get what we should only be getting from God. And that is when our relationships get broken. When God doesn't come first, the thing that we think we are helping, we end up hurting. Eve replaced God's instruction with Satan's instruction. Adam replaced God's instruction with Eve's instruction or coercion. And the relationships were broken. Paradise was lost. Perfection was gone. Not because God made it that way, but because God made it possible for people to show real love and real trust because they could also reject and disobey. And that rejection came with consequences. And if you continue reading in Genesis 3, which we don't have time for today, you will see the curses that come about for the serpent, for Eve, and for Adam because of their choices. Curses that would have an impact on generation after generation. All of their children, it would get passed on to them. And we don't have time to to go into all of those, so I'm just gonna give you the summary that Paul gives us in Romans chapter five. He says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. See, Adam was the representative, the head of the human race. And when he sinned, he took the whole human race with him. The curse wasn't just for him, it was for his offspring. And that leads us to another interesting question, which is couldn't God have just taken it back? Couldn't he have just given him another chance and said, you know what, you know what, all right, you failed this one, let's just have a do-over. Backsies, we're just gonna go back and let's try to do this over again. When I talk to my children, And I say, if you do that one more time, so help me, I will give you this consequence. And then they go and do that thing that I told them not to do. And I come back to them and say, if you do that one more time, what have I shown about myself? I don't keep my promises. I'm not a person of integrity. If I just give a a requirement and, and share the consequence, and then I don't follow through on that consequence, what have my children learned? Dad doesn't really mean it. Looks like we can get away with it a couple of times. Let's see how far we can push this thing. And there are many children around who are walking examples of this principle. They have learned that their parents don't really mean it the first time or the second time. Let's see how far we can go. One kid actually told me one time, I know that if I nag this many times, my mom will give in. Uh, He had the number. This kid's smart. Dangerous smart. What happens if God doesn't follow through on the consequences that he gave so that we could have real love and real trust and an intimate relationship with him, not like the animals? He's not an honest God. He's not trustworthy. He doesn't keep his promises. He's not faithful. See, it goes both ways. It can't just be I'm faithful in the things that I say that are gonna be good. I also have to be faithful and trustworthy in the things I say that are gonna be bad. God can't just do a do-over and be God. And so we have consequences. We have sin, we have pain, we have disease, we have death. 
brokenness all around us, in our lives, in our minds, and we have to remember that it's not supposed to be this way. It's not how God created it to be. We messed it up, and now we live in this broken and messed up world with all this pain and all this suffering. And I warned you, I warned all of you, this is not the warm, fuzzy message. This is the message that says, it's broken, it's messed up. The stuff that you're dealing with, yeah, it's real. We're all dealing with it. It's the result of the decisions of people who God allowed to reject him. The beautiful message is, there is hope in all of that. But in order to appreciate that hope and understand that hope and value and treasure it, we have to understand why we need it in the first place. And that's what today is all about. Next week, we are going to dive into how God would bring about that hope. How would he turn the tables on this? How would he create a way for redemption from this? How would he get something of a do-over and yet still satisfy his integrity and his faithfulness and his justice to the consequences that he brought about? It's an incredible problem, an incredible challenge. But he's up for the challenge. And so we have hope. But be sure you're here next week because that message is gonna be a lot more fun than this one. Why don't you bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, we know you are the awesome and all-powerful God who created the universe, who created the earth, who created the first two people, who created everything and said it was very good. And people messed it up. And we live in a messed up world and we know it's not supposed to be that way and we feel it in our bones. Even if we don't understand you or even if we don't understand how it all came about, every single person knows it just isn't supposed to be this way. We want it to be better. Help us to understand what you did to begin with and why you had to do it that way so that you could have the kind of relationship with us that the animals don't have, even the angels don't have. They will never experience redemption that's why they look at what we get to experience in redemption and marvel, the Bible says. So Lord, thank you for what you are doing through us. Thank you that you are a God that we can trust, knows far more than we will ever understand. A God who is awesome and powerful. Great God who has hope for us. Help us to live in that hope. And in Jesus' name I pray.